Jesus, we thank you. We just ask you to be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, you teach us. Jesus, you be our good shepherd. You lead us this morning. Let the love of God be shed abroad in our hearts. Let the love of God be shed abroad in our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, go with me to Luke 15. We're going to look at a story that will be very familiar to a lot of you and maybe new to some of you. Um, one of the things that's really interesting when you start looking at Jesus' teaching ministry, um, especially in our context of what many of us are used to hearing, you'd expect Jesus to sort of hammer on sin. You'd expect him to go after the people that aren't living right. You'd expect him to go after these people. But time and time again, you find him with those people and you find him just outright going after the religious people. And it's so fascinating to me that he just so often goes after them. And the reason, I think, there's more than one reason, I'm sure, but built into any religion, and unfortunately most of the way that we understand Christianity would be the same, there's assumption of separation that's built in. We assume that God is way out there. We assume that there's this huge gap between us and God. And uh, you assume so often that you're what many have called uh, snow-covered dumb. He's sort of, you're, you're just a worthless sinner. Somehow God sort of bared with you and saved you anyways, but there's not a whole lot to you. It's just purely by His grace and mercy, which... His grace and mercy is good, but it's the, it, we miss this part that God actually likes you. God actually created you for good. John told us that nothing has come into being apart from him. You were created in, through, by, and for Jesus, according to the New Testament. Pastor Wallace quoted it earlier. In him you live and move and have your being. But inside of any religion, there's an assumption of separation. There's this idea that you are completely lost, hope, hopeless, and then religion becomes your do-it-yourself guide to get to God. Religion says, do these things, and then you can get to God. Do them well, don't mess it up, and then you can get to God. Jesus comes and he says, you're wrong about my father. You're wrong about how we see you. You're wrong about this entire idea of religion. So rather than creating another one, I'm going to obliterate the need for religion altogether. Because now I'm going to get on the inside of you. And the beauty of it and the goodness of it for you and I is that Jesus is not afraid of your mess. It's not true that once you get it all sorted out, Jesus comes on the inside of you and says, now we can actually start to do something. Jesus gets in the inside of you all up in your darkness, all up in the mess that makes you who you are. And he finds his home in that place and says, now let's go to work. But he's not afraid to get in the middle of whatever it is you find yourself in this morning. Religion will tell you, figure it out, get it right, and then you can have a relationship with God. Jesus says, I'm coming to you and I'm going to find you in the middle of your darkness. I'm going to get on the inside of you and work my way from the inside out. That's the beauty of what Jesus has done. Religion assumes this separation. Jesus comes to completely remove that altogether by stepping into a body, becoming you, and finding his way on the inside of us. 
That's what happened when Jesus became a man. So he comes to deal with religion. Well, the religious leaders have all these ideas about who God is, what he's like, and what you need to do to make sure you get on his good side. And Jesus comes and says, you're wrong. I've been face to face with my father all along. I love this quote by George MacDonald. He was a Scottish writer. He said, as long as the father loves the son and the son loves the father, all is well with the little ones. You feel just the peace that that gives you to say, as long as the father loves his son and the son loves the father, all is going to be okay. Because what Jesus did, he came to say, this is my relationship with my father. This is what he's actually like. And this is the type of fellowship that I have enjoyed with him forever. Now you get to have that. So when you start to have these thoughts of I'm worthless, I'm not good enough, I'm this, I'm that, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Ask yourself, would Jesus ever say that to his father? That's the beauty of watching what Jesus has. And that's why the entire heart of the New Testament is relationship between the father and the son. Because as long as the son loves the father and the father loves the son, all is well with the little ones. All is well for you and I. We don't have anything to worry about because whatever is true of Jesus' relationship with his father is true of your relationship with your father. And that's true only because of what Jesus has done. It has nothing to do with your works. Romans 4 says that God's works are enough apart from our own works of righteousness. Apart from our works, God's work is enough. Jesus did it. He said it is finished and then invited you into that relationship. So whatever relationship Jesus has with his father is the relationship that you have. Just no one's told you that. You still think that you have to figure this out and do this and that and cross the T's and dot the I's and do X, Y, Z before you make it work. And we end up doing some kind of religious gymnastics our whole life. It's exhausting. And it's, it, you don't need it. Jesus did it for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. So in Luke 15, we come into one of those scenarios where Jesus is just going to outright say, you're wrong. We're going to start in verse 11. But before that, I'm just going to do a quick run through of before. I love how he starts in 15. You don't have to put this up, but it just says all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. So there he is again. And then it says, and the Pharisees and scribes complained. And I love that because if you don't know who the Pharisees are, they're the religious leaders. They're the people that supposedly have all the answers. They're the, they're the religious police that are making sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. They're mightier than everybody. They're holier than everybody. They're telling everybody how wrong they are and how right they are. That's who the Pharisees are. And then Jesus comes and just insults everything that they are. You ever know those ultra-religious types that honestly just suck the life out of whatever room they're in? They're just dry. They're so serious all the time. They can't laugh at anything. It's, it's like the Jeff Foxworthy thing. You might be a redneck. It's like you might be a Pharisee. Don't look around. You're not, you, it, I'm not talking about y'all. It's, you, know, you know the person. It's not you. Right? That's the type. That's who these people are. And Jesus comes and over and over does every little thing he can to just get on their last nerve. 
So in chapter 15, he's going to completely dismember their ideology of who God is. So he starts, and what we have is a, a story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. We're going to focus on the story of the lost son. But what's so cool is he starts off saying it's the lost sheep. And what shepherd wouldn't leave the 99 to go after the one that's lost? So Jesus is the good shepherd that goes. And not only that, he gets to the sheep. And the way that we preach the gospel is he should have got to the sheep and said, do you know what you did wrong? Do you know how lost you are? Over there is the right direction. If you can get over there, I'll be your shepherd again. He picks the sheep up, throws it over his shoulder and walks it back because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation. So as you watch the story unfold, he starts off with the story of the good shepherd. That's Jesus. He starts off uh, the second story talking about the lost coin. A woman loses a coin. She goes around with a line until she can find it. That's the Holy Spirit. And then we have the story of the lost son, which, as I'm going to show you later, actually is not even about the son. It's about the father. So we have the whole trinity in this story working together. And I just love that Jesus, as using an analogy for God, uses a woman to describe it just to offend the religious spirit. Some of you are offended at that idea right now, as I'm telling you. You do understand that God is not an elderly white man, right? So he starts to show this, and it's the Holy Spirit with the light going around looking for the coin, which is exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit gets on the inside of us. Light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. Do you know that it's not your job to figure out what's wrong with you? The Holy Spirit is very, very good at his job. Stop trying to go all introspective and figure out what's wrong with you. If there's something there, the Holy Spirit will tell you and then you can fix it. Otherwise, just be you. It's going to be okay. As long as the Father loves the Son, all is well with the little ones. So then we get to the story that I want to look at today. And most of us know it as the story of the prodigal son. It's actually a story about the Father. And I'm going to show you that today. We're just going to read through it real fast. And then we're going to go through verse by verse. So chapter 15, verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of my goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all their, excuse me, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. And then he began to be in one. Verse 15. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. It's very, very offensive to a Jewish person. So just picture that. So he's feeding swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 20, he arose, came to his father, But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Verse 25. Now this older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come because he is re- and we have received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 28. But when he was angry and would not go in, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. 31. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. It's just a great story. But there's some, some things I want to highlight. Um, it's worth saying that a, a life without any restriction is slavery in itself. He, he goes off, does whatever he wants. He does not restrict himself at all, and that becomes his slavery. You think it's freedom. It's just slavery. So there, it, there, it's wisdom to have restriction. It's wisdom to be led of the Spirit in, in how we live. But... Don't let that become the focal point. People preach this all the time and they just focus on, see, he went out and he was in the pig pen and he's prodigal living. See, that's what you are and that's what your kids are and that's where your grandkids are and we need to get them back and this and that. Don't let that distract from the beauty of the story. The father there receives his son with compassion regardless. That's the beauty of who God is. And that's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees are going around telling everybody what they have to do to get favor with God. And he's saying he's giving it to you regardless. Again, doesn't mean that a restricted lifestyle is not a good thing. It just means it doesn't change how he feels about you. So a couple things that would have just really drove them crazy. Number one, he starts the story with the son coming and asking for his inheritance. And the father just gives it to him. Because he asked. Completely out of order. There were no requirements. There was no list of things that he should have done to earn it. There was no wait until you're mature enough. Wait until you're here. Not even a wait until I die. Which would have been totally acceptable. He just gives it to him. Gives it all to him. And doesn't say anything else. Completely offends the religious spirit. Because we're so humanistic. We would not ever believe that God would give us something without us earning it. We are so full of ourselves that we think everything that belongs to us, we earned. We could not even fathom the freeness of this gospel that the only thing that you did to contribute to this relationship was to hang him on a cross and yell, crucify him. We took communion earlier. I love, I I tell people this, this confuses people until I explain it. Every time I do communion, I think of Judas. The reason being is he looks at Judas and says, he who dips the bread and takes the cup, right? 
Every time I take it, this is the only contribution I had to this relationship was that I was the one that betrayed you. In our rage, in our aggression, we rejected the Son of God. And he takes that rejection, spins it, and uses it as his means of redemption. Isn't that beautiful? He just gives the Son the inheritance without any condition. Because it's an unconditional gift. And he's trying to teach them something about his Father that he does not require this of you. That's why in Hebrews 6, it starts to say, God looked for someone to make a covenant with. And when he found no one, he made a covenant with himself. And then God being one came down, became a man, fulfilled all the laws of the covenant himself. And became us and said the yes that you and I never could. So he just fulfilled both ends of the covenant for you. Isn't that awesome? So that's number one. He gives it to them without anything. Um, I'm going to come back to, to that. But he takes it. He goes out. Um, lives this crazy lifestyle. And then he comes to himself is what it says in verse uh, 17. He came to himself. I love that that's the phrase that it uses. Repentance is the word metanoia, which means to change the way that you think. Now, your behavior should follow a changed way of thinking, but ultimately, you're just changing your mind. What's so beautiful about this is because what Jesus has done, he created you to be good. He created you for fellowship. He created you to be with him forever. That's what you were made for. And on the inside of you, regardless of where you find yourself today, is a redeemed innocence. It's your original blueprint. Now, I won't go into all the details, but what we could say for the sake of this argument Sin in and of itself is to live outside of your original design. Now, sure, we could throw lists out there. Well, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. And we could debate that all day long. But at the end of the day, sin is just living outside of your original design. It's not who you were created to be. On the inside of you is who you've been all along. And Jesus is shining that light until you begin to see it. And you have an awakening where you go, oh, this is who I am. I, I talked about this the last time I was here, Ephesians 1, that before the foundation of the world, he found you, created you, and called you to be holy and blameless and beloved. That's who you've been before the foundation of the world. That's who you were created to be. He came to himself. He looks around at his situation. He goes, this is not me. This is not who I am. I'm, I'm an heir. I'm a son. Galatians 4, we'll talk about this. The son and the slave differeth nothing, though he be Lord of all. Until the time appointed by the Father. And that's where we start to get into this idea of adoption. Where you realize you're not outside coming inside. You've been inside all along. The darkness blinded you and you didn't see it. You woke up to the reality of who you were designed and created to be. That's your conversion. It's, it's in your mind. That you change the way that you think. And start to see things as they truly are. That's why when you hear the truth. The truth will make you free. Because for the first time someone's actually saying that's who you are. So he came to himself. It wasn't that he was bad and now he's good. It was that he was always good. He was confused. And he changed the way that he thought. Now, another thing that we start to see is he goes, all of the hired hands, they're eating well. So that starts to tell us again something about the father. He takes care of his people. He's generous. He's kind. He's compassionate. So we're starting to see this. He's not a taskmaster. 
You know, we, we sing songs in here, just if I can just barely make it in, I'll, I'll scrape, scrape behind the, by the skin of my teeth. I'll, you know, I'll be somewhere, I'll barely making heaven. That's not who your father is. So stop saying that. Stop singing about it. You deserve to be there because of what Jesus has done and because of Christ in me is my hope of glory. So he comes to himself, he looks around and he realizes my father is good. He takes care of his people. Now, what's really interesting. Remember, Jesus is using this as an example. Jesus has created the story. And what he begins to do in verse 18, he goes, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Does that not sound exactly like how we teach people to repeat the sinner's prayer? Is, is that not how us preachers invite you up? This is what you repeat after me. And Jesus is using that as his anti-example. Because we're just training people to limp their way in and turn their back and just wait for the blow that might be coming. Lord, I'm unworthy. I've sinned against you. I'll just be a servant. I'll just do this and that. And your father wants to embrace you in compassion and love and in fellowship. And the whole time you're trembling before him because you don't know who Jesus' father is. Look at that. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Maybe like one of your hired servants. He gets to the father. The father sees him in verse 21. He starts to recite his prepared speech. He decides to try on religion. I'm going to say the right things. I'm going to do the right things. And then maybe my father will accept me back. And the father will hear none of it. He, if you pay attention, he actually interrupts him. Doesn't even let him finish his rehearsed thing. And before he can get his confession out, he's already calling for the robe, for the ring, for the sandals. He's, he's planning the whole party for him. And he hadn't even got it out of his system yet. Let me ask you a trick question. What is the qualification for you to be called a believer? Let, let's try believing. Right? Have you ever heard this phrase? Some of you have used this phrase, and you know someone's used that. I will get XYZ clean. Then I'll come to Jesus. You don't realize it. You just communicated that you believe in Jesus. Do you see what you're doing? I know Jesus will save me. I know Jesus can save me. And I know all I do have to do is come to him and he'll save me. But I'm not going to do it yet. You already believe in him. So just deal with it. Why delay the process? Why create all of these fake rules that nobody gave you? That's not who Jesus is. Religion taught you that. And that's exactly what religion does. And I'm going to show you that here in just a second. He comes and he tries to recite the prayer. And the father goes, I'm not hearing any of that. You are a son. You've always been a son. You always will be a son. And I don't care what you do, nothing will change that. Nothing will change that. You're a son because I made you a son. You don't make yourself a son. Your father makes you a son. As long as the father loves the son, all is well with the little ones. So the father throws this huge party to celebrate his son coming back. 
And now we get to start to see the other brother. So we've got different people represented in the room. You know people that can be represented by these brothers. You've got one that's just off doing who knows what, living his life. And then he comes back and he's trying to ask for forgiveness. And he tries on this religious thing of I'm going to say the right things and do the right things. And then the father might receive me, but I don't know. And the father completely blows all that away. Now you have the other son that's fighting and clawing and trying to find favor with his father a different way. I'm, I'm, the, other, I'm the other brother. right? I've lived a sheltered life. I've not really known any hardships. Like I'll admit that. And yet I'm still trying to sort through all this stuff, right? And many of you are the same way. Like, if we go back to the beginning of the story, the other brother, the, the, the brother that goes off and, and wastes everything, he comes and he says, Father, I'd like to have my inheritance. And if you pay attention, the father distributes it to both of them. So one son comes and he just decides, well, I'll just give my, I'll give both of them their inheritance now. The one son takes it off and just goes and has, has a time with it. The other son is still there working his tail off, trying to earn his inheritance that already belongs to him. So when the other brother comes home and they throw this huge party for him, he goes up to his father. And what you'll notice is he says, this son of yours. I thought he was your brother, but it's this son of yours. I have a sibling, so I understand. There have been moments where I've said, there's a daughter of yours. And if she were here, she'd say the same thing. Religion always creates division. It always creates an us them. Because you're over here doing all the religious stuff. You go to church, you pay your tithes, you pray, you fast, you read your Bible, you're doing all the good stuff. And then you see all the other people doing this stuff. It's always an us, them. Well, they need to become one of us. And it creates this huge division. We talk about division in our country. It's, our churches are riddled with it because there's always an us, them. Because of this assumption of separation, you assume you're separated from God. So you're for sure that everyone else must be separated from God. If God's mad at me and I'm doing all this, I know he's mad at you. You see how that happens? That's why when Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. What most of you do, you hate yourself. You see how that works? You have such a poor view of who you are. You just project that on everybody. You're angry, so you get angry with everybody else. You're bitter, you're prideful, you're whatever, so you just project it on everybody else. This happens in marriage all the time. We think that two halves make a whole. So two half people that haven't come to the fullness of who they're supposed to be try to come into marriage, and then they rip each other apart because you were supposed to fill in this gap for me. You were supposed to fulfill me in this area. I'm unfulfilled in myself. You were supposed to fix this. And now all of a sudden I've tried to make her my savior. And when she falls short, I'm mad at her. <laughs> Two holes come together and make a hole. And that's why the older brother starts to look and go, I've been here doing everything. And you never threw me a party. And he's still there 
trying to earn something that already belongs to him. And that's exactly what we do every Sunday morning. That's what you do when you try to create all these different rules for you that Jesus never gave you. You start trying to create these little hurdles for you, and it makes you feel good because you don't actually have faith in what Jesus did. You have faith in what you're doing. So if I can do enough, I can actually start to believe that maybe something's happening in me. You see how it works? We have faith in our faith. If I have enough faith, if I pray hard enough, if I attend church consistently enough, if I give enough money, maybe then it'll fill that void. Instead of just saying, you know what, what you did, Jesus, was enough. When you said it is finished, it was finished. Apart from my works, God's work is enough. Instead, you're just trying to earn something that already belongs to you. What if you actually, for the first time in your life, felt secure in your relationship with God where you could actually sit down and take a breath? And then actually start to go do some stuff for good reasons instead of just trying to fill some kind of void on the inside of you that says, if I'm I'm not doing enough. I made a mistake, so now I'm going to create some kind of spiritual timeout for myself. I'm going to pray twice as long the next day because I I, I missed the day. I didn't do my Bible study yesterday, so I'm going to read a dozen chapters tomorrow. I'm going I'm to do this or that. And you just create all these rules trying to earn something that's already yours. You're the older brother. But the father goes after him just like the other one. Because he's no respecter of persons. He goes out. He hears about the son that's there. And he says, I'm going to go after him too. And I'm going to pull him out of this. And I'm going to show both of them. I, and he says, you're with me always. Everything that belongs to me belongs to you. As we come to the end of that story, remember Jesus is teaching you. He's trying to teach you. This is true of you too. If you're in the room and you're the prodigal, maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a while, you, you, I don't even know, you know what you've done in your life. You could have done something on the way here this morning. Whatever it is, the Father will run after you this morning. You may be on the complete other side. You may have been in church your entire life, doing everything right, checking every box. But on the inside, you know you've never had any kind of assurance. The Father will come after you this morning too. And he has compassion for both parties. Because Jesus is coming and saying, you're wrong about my father. He's not retributive. He's not impatient. He's not looking for you to earn affection. He's not looking for you to find your way in favor with him. He established it himself and he accomplished it by his own hand on your behalf. And then he just gives it to you. All you have to do is agree with him. And sometimes agreeing with him about how he feels about you is the hardest thing that you can actually do because you know you. Not the you that you make everyone else see. Not the you on Sunday morning. Not even the you you'd like to be. He's on the inside of you. And he looks you in the eye in all that garbage and says, I love you. You're mine. Period. Deal with it. There's nothing you can do about it. Let's stand.
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you are impacted by this message, please consider going and sowing into our ministry at dylantarpley.com slash give.